0: I pray that we would see our, our desperate need for you. I pray that we would uh, understand our uh, propensity to, to move away from you, even though what we've experienced from you is, is amazing. And the redemption that we have in you alone is, is unmatched, obviously. Uh, yet still we wonder, still we're prone to wonder, and we need you. That's why we gather here tonight. I'm thinking of the psalm that says, how do, how do we keep our way pure? We guard it. According to your word, and so that's why we're going to the word tonight. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Genesis 48. I'm still weirded out of how many people in this body can just lead worship and song. It's crazy to me. It's like at any gathering, half the people could just lead worship and song. All right. We're coming to the end of Genesis. The end of the beginning, as it were. Um, we're in Genesis 48 and 49 tonight. We're going to be looking at family blessings and generational faithfulness. Family blessings and generational uh, faithfulness. The book of Genesis, which this week and next week is it. We'll finish. That's crazy. It's been years, um, but we will finish next week. Uh, and it ends with these final blessings, this generational recounting in the funerals of two patriarchs. Is how the how the book ends. Um, the approach should be sober because the content is sobering. Uh, what we're going to read is, uh, what we're going to look at it, it's a lot like we're walking into the hospital room. Think of that. Think of it this way. We're walking into the hospital room of a really great man who's at the end of his life, and he's addressing his family. And just listen and know that in, in And by God's divine ordaining, you're a part of this family who he's addressing. And so, uh, it's like we're coming to the end of of the life of a patriarch. It's it's as though he's giving his last will and testament in a sense. He's addressing the family. It's very intimate. Uh, It's very sobering. It's somber. Um, As we dive into these few chapters, I want to consider... Uh, what are some themes, before we look at what Jacob has to say to his offspring, what are some themes that we have engaged in Genesis starting at the beginning? Themes, just these, I see God do this regularly. And there are some themes. There are some of those. God's sovereignty, absolutely, from the get-go. Creation was not some happenstance explosion, it was the sovereign God ordering it as he saw fit. Sovereignty. Provision. Provision. How how, how have we seen provision in Genesis? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, choosing and calling. Deliverance, deliverer, yeah. What else, some themes? Forgiveness, Forgiveness. yeah, thankful for that one. There's all these things that the, you know... We've talked about this before where people would like to consider God in the Old Testament as very different from God in the New Testament, but all those things you've talked about, forgiveness, a God who's sovereign, who moves according to his ways, he redeems people who need redeeming, who don't deserve it at all. It it happened that way at the very beginning. It happened that way in creation. It happened with Adam and Eve, and it happened to every human being from there on after. And so what we see here is there are these things in the book of Genesis, these themes that are very important, sovereignty, forgiveness, provision, Uh, nature does not equal God's design. God's design will sometimes trump nature and the natural order of things like we'll look at um, tonight. Um, These are all things that have uh, been going on, really, from the beginning. And as we're coming to the end of Genesis, I just want to make sure we don't miss these themes, these precedents that have been set for us uh, divinely uh, by God in this book of beginnings. So look at Genesis 48, verse 1. Last week... Uh, we looked at the famine and how Joseph worked very hard to provide for his family. We saw God's blessing and much of that uh, just all throughout it. And then we, see, uh, we saw last week uh, Jacob coming to the end of his life. And that's where we're at. Like I said, it's, it's as though we're walking into a hospital room or something. And he's, he's in his last moments and he's communicating important truths to uh, his family. So 48 verse 1, after this, uh, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, who are Ephraim and Manasseh? They're his sons, but where'd they come from? In Genesis 46, 20, just turn over there real quick. Forty-six twenty. you might not even have to turn. I think for most of the SV Bibles, it's right there, but uh, it says, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom uh, Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And so what's significant about the ethnic makeup of these two boys? Say that again? They're part Egyptian, like half. And what's their other half? Hebrew. And so this is a very unique makeup of these boys. And so they're going to their to see their grandfather, who is... Um, is he part Egyptian? No, not at all. So this is interesting. Here you have grandsons who are half Hebrew, half Egyptian, who are going to their full Hebrew grandfather, like, like really Hebrew grandfather. And we're, we're going to see an exchange here that, that, that is actually quite unique. Um, verse two, look at verses 2 through 11. Tonight we'll be reading larger chunks of Scripture and then talking about them after we read them. So pay attention to the details a, as we read Verse 2, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Love that. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine and, Reuben and as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from uh, Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. You, you hear him recounting these significant moments in his life and these significant realities that he wants to make sure are communicated to his son. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And that's sweet. That's sweet. That is a sweet moment. This is um, a very, very significant moment. Not only did he never expect to see his son again, he thought his son was dead, and now he's spending. He saw his son for the first seventeen years of his life, and now he's he spent the last seventeen years of his life with his son. He's just saying, "I I didn't even think I'd see your face, and now I got I got grandsons. I get to see your boys here with me." And so, just for perspective. If the first 17 years of his life were spent and then he was sold into Egypt and now we're at the last 17 years and he's living to be 147, you get an idea of the scope of time that they went without each other, right? It was a long time. And so um, this is a very significant moment. At the end of life, words are chosen very carefully. We saw it in John 17 in Jesus' prayer, um, as he, the, the high priestly prayer as he sang sort of his last <laughs> will and testament to the Lord. Um, These moments are not trite and flippant, uh, but somber, sober, and intentional. And Jacob summons the strength to extend respect and honor to his son by summoning his strength to sit up and and speak. He shows honor. I mean, you see this old guy saying, all right, here we go. Got to kind of work up. And he stands up, and he's, he's leaning on his staff, and he speaks to his son. And what were his first words? What were the first words he spoke at this critical moment? God Almighty. God, you can see the old guy. He's 147. God Almighty. We're going to start with them, with God, with him, and we're going to go from there. You can just see him sitting up saying, God Almighty. Uh, he begins with a recounting is what we're seeing here. He goes in and, and he explains how God visited him and how God reminded him of promises and how God showed him what was going to happen to their offspring and what God's plan was for his offspring, for his glory. Um, he begins with a recounting, according to Psalm 9, what's happening here, what we're seeing from Jacob is an act of wholehearted worship. He's making it clear that he's keenly aware of God's movement and his blessing and his life. And what, what we're seeing here is he wants his sons to see this. And this is a really important theme here. He wants his sons to see this. And he goes back to God's promises. In verse 5, in 48.5, it says, um, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you, in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. In verse 5, what we're seeing here, actually, is sort of a, uh, and we'll explain it more in the next chapter, but, Ephraim and Manasseh are rightly instated into the patriarchal family. This is a big deal. You are, you, two boys, you are part Hebrew, part Egyptian, half and half. You're a member of God's family. He, he is bringing them in and saying, just like Reuben and Simeon are mine, so these two are mine. They are of the offspring of Abraham, and so they shall live, and so they should be. And he, and he ordains and speaks this blessing on them as members of, of God's household which is a really sweet moment. Because up until that point, what have those two boys experienced? What's their life probably been like? What have they observed in their father? What have they observed about God? Hmm. Yeah, they, they live in Egypt. They're in an Egyptian household. All their schoolmates were Egyptians. They graduated from the Egyptian high school. You know, very Egyptian culture. However, they worship the one true God. We know that Joseph hasn't kept that a secret through his time. So what they're seeing here, it's a really sweet moment. I really want us to climb into it Import your senses. What does it look like? What would this feel like if you were getting this news? My daddy has told us about this God our whole life. And I get to meet my daddy's daddy, who says we're a part of God's family. And now what they've known as family has been fairly small in part. Now they're looking at Abraham, who I'm sure they've heard of, obviously. They're looking at Jacob, who I'm sure they've heard of, obviously. And they're getting to connect some dots here. And it's a pretty sweet moment where he's saying, Boys, I don't look at you as like um, just half uh, family of God. You're adopted into this family. You are part of this family. This is a picture of adoption. This is a picture of just a beautiful bringing them in and saying, you are of God's family. Um, And this happens sort of in place of Reuben and Simeon. And we'll talk more about that later, but just keep your eye on that. This is significant because growing up in the commonwealth of Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh could easily be enticed into the Egyptian lifestyle. I mean, what was the Egyptian lifestyle as we know it? idolatrous, multiple gods. They could have been just kind of consumed into that. Um, but in order that God's promises are fulfilled, both of the boys will have to come to a place where, what, what happens if they become Israelites? Where do they go? Where are they going to stay from there on out? Yeah, the land of Goshen, Right? Where there's all those shepherds. So, so you're of the shepherds. Okay. Because you could have gone either way. Like you were half and half, but now you're of that people. And so all shepherds are what in the eyes of Egyptians? An abomination. So in order to be accepted into the family of God, they're going to be considered what? An abomination. Make the connections. There's a lot of parallels here. Now, um, uh, God's promises will be fulfilled um, they're going to come to a place of being despised by the Egyptians just like their ancestors. And in regards to verse 8, look at verse 8. Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, uh, who are these? Um, that What's happening there is, is he has bad eyesight. He's not like, I've never met them. There's been communication, um, but he has bad eyesight. So he's, he's saying to his son, who's, who's with you? And he says, these are your grandsons, and, and I'm going to bring them to you so you can bless them. Um, I was struck with the sad reality that I don't think there are enough granddads who give a rip about bestowing blessing on their grandkids. Spoiling the grandkids is one thing. We all get that, right? Um, But I don't know. I was thinking of my life. I was thinking of observations um, and others. Well, how many of you have God-fearing grandfathers who speak biblical truth to you as part of the family regularly? I mean, show of hands, like, how many of you do? Did or did? Okay, that's not the majority. For me, I have, uh, I had a grandfather who was close to the family on my mom's side, and a great man, he's passed away. And then I have another grandfather, my dad's dad, who very, very distant. My my daughters don't even really hardly know who he is. Um, uh, He's been married many times. He's never, I mean, I've heard him talk about God, I've heard him talk about Jesus, but there's, I, I, I never got to see this. This is incredible, what we're seeing in this chapter. Um, some have that, many don't. I would say that if there is no faith, there will be no view towards generational faithfulness. So my, my dad's dad, he's not going to have a view towards generational faithfulness because um, without faithfulness, you're not going to have a view towards generational faithfulness. But what I would like to look at for a few minutes, because we're seeing a blessing on generations here, I would like to look at the fact that, by definition, I think true faithfulness must have a view towards future generations. That's where we're getting at in these chapters. I don't think you can be truly faithful according to this biblical standard. Now, I'm not talking about works. Do not confuse the two. But I think that by God's definition that he gives of what faithfulness is, it has a generational perspective. What I mean, another way of saying that is, if you are of the faith, it's not okay for you to not care about if your kids are or if your grandkids are. It's a necessity that you do care about that. And it's a necessity that you speak and you act and you respond in a way that communicates that and communicates to your kids and your grandkids. And if you have the blessing of speaking to great-grandkids someday, that you tell them about their God. You tell them about how great their God is. And you tell them about about how important it is that this is a family that honors and fears the Lord. Um, uh, Turn to Psalm 145, verse 4. We're going to spend a few minutes on this. Because we're about to read through a bunch of blessings. And I don't think they make as much sense without understanding that true faithfulness must have a generational perspective. Psalm 145, verse 4. We'll just start in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King. This is David. He is worshiping the Lord. And it's recorded so that we can see how David, a believer, was worshiping the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall, shall declare your works to another. It is a sweet, sweet thing when this is happening. Uh, just before this started, uh, Ginevra was showing me. Can you read that out loud? Is that weird? Oh, were you sharing it? You're bragging. You're bragging. These. The, the. This is sweet. This is an example of this. Wow. Well, I don't know how many times I got that on my progress report growing up. Um how, how horrible would it be if as parents you got something like that and were like, that's cool, whatever. I mean, you want to foster that. The whole reason that report came out is that it's being fostered. There's this generational perspective of faithfulness. where, And when I say generational faithfulness, faithfulness, let me be careful, because I'm not saying that your children can be believers just because you are. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about taking the responsibility that's been given to you to do what this says, to speak the truth to the next generation. That's what I'm saying when I say have a view towards generational faithfulness, not towards, well, if I'm a believer, my kid's can be a believer, and that's that. And I'm only a believer because my parents were a believer. If you're sitting here thinking that your belief is solely reliable on the fact that your parents were believers, then, then that, is, that is not sufficient. That is not sufficient. And I would urge you to really talk to a brother or sister in Christ about that, because that's a serious matter. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about generational faithfulness. It is the biblical duty of every generation of Christians to see to it that the next generation hears about the mighty acts of your Lord. We should talk about it. It's sweet. Like in that circumstance, it'd be awesome to say, hey, Charlie, check this out. Because you want the generations to see God's hand and God's movement all the time. That's why Deuteronomy 6, it talks about um, 6, 4 through 7. You don't have to turn there, but... This is the Shema, uh, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. These words, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. That's the hard part. I mean, I can, uh, you know, once a week, you know, punt. Oh, they got it. That's cool. All right. Did y'all see that? That's something about Jesus. Diligently is a different picture. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. All the time. Diligently. A view towards generational faithfulness. Centuries later, Asaph says in Psalm 78, you don't have to turn there, but I would write these in your notes. Go over them as a family. Look at these other families who are part of your family how they referred to their children and the importance of this generational perspective. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. The Lord established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law on Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. I don't hear like a lot of optional perspective of your children. Like, well, I hope so. Like, let me shoot this in the foot too. Um, if you believe in a sovereign God, that's not a reason, like, not to pray. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm not a, I think I'm preaching at the end of March, and I think I'm going to preach on God's sovereignty and prayer because we get it very backwards sometimes where we think God's sovereign. What's the point in praying. He's going to do what he's going to do. That, some people will take that to the extent of saying God's sovereign. What's the point of evangelism? Like, why am I going to go make sure people know about Jesus? He's going to do what he's going to do. Because he's sovereign, we pray. There is some sense of hope, there is some understanding, there is this thing that God is sovereign and I will go to him for every single need, and because he's sovereign, I'm going to do what he told me to do. I'm going to obey him, like when he says, he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born. I mean, that's very intentional, that they may arise and tell them to their children, Like if you ever prayed for your grandkids who haven't been born yet, that's like what that's a picture of. That they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do your kids know what God's doing? Do they know what he's done in the past? If you're a grandparent, do you have that view of your grandkids? Because sometimes grandparents say, well... I raised my kids, but these aren't my kids to raise, so I'm going to be very hands-off here. Sometimes God may have ordained it so that you are in the circumstance to step in and say, son, son, daughter, my grandchildren have to know about the Lord. And maybe even I didn't do a good job with you, but um, we need to make sure that our family is following the Lord and that my grandchildren and their children um, have an understanding of what the Lord desires of them in their lives and how good he is. Not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Just for a minute, fathers. How, do we, how could we possibly, I mean, we're talking about, talking about God. How could we provoke our children to anger? Why is that in there at that point? Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What are some ways you could potentially provoke your children to anger? Not being consistent. That will drive them nuts, won't it? Won't it? It makes me angry. If someone's inconsistent, do this, don't do this, do this. Is this okay? Is this not okay? What's expected? What does God want? I can't read yet. I can. I'm talking about the children. <laughs> what are some other ways that they could be provoked to anger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you know when I'm most tempted to be angry with my children? When they're not sitting down like this for devotionals? When I'm trying to read the Bible and they're like bouncing off the wall, I'm like, come on! It's devotional time! And I get so frustrated. It's like, oh, this is a good time to provoke my children to anger by being angry. One of the easiest things to provoke your child to anger is just being angry. Um, That's that's a great point. Someone over here said something? Yeah. Do what? No, never You've never done that? That's good. For uh, anyone listening on the recording online, Clay has never done that. And if you need help, he is, he's here to help. He's here to help. Nice. nice. It's easy. I mean, it's, I mean that verse is there because we need to be reminded of it. I mean, God doesn't include things like, ah, I think they'll probably get this. It's not a big deal. He puts this in here because we need to be reminded of it. It's so easy. To provoke your children to anger in many ways, being, uh, uh, being inconsistent, um, not disciplining at one point and over disciplining at another point, um, being angry yourself. I mean, for me, one of the easiest ways to provoke my children to anger is just being angry. Um, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's the difference between discipline and instruction? It's both the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Yeah, the discipline is, is the discipline of it. Not to use a word to define a word, but like actually walking in it and doing it. And then the instruction is, is sort of the how. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says this, so we're actually going to do this. Um, that, that's a good way of saying it. Um, the biblical pattern is for parents, especially fathers, not to relinquish their role as the primary teachers and shapers of their children's mind and heart. They're not even to relinquish that role to the church. The biblical pattern is for parents to impart their, to their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated vision for all of life. Uh, that that's this generational perspective of faithfulness that I, that I hope we are fostering here. I, I really, I'm hoping that no one's sitting here going, this is new. This is blowing my mind with this new teaching. I hope, I, I mean, really, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, I hope a lot of them for the first half of this are going, yeah, we do. We, we need to be doing that. We, I've heard that, and we're going to work on that. Um, uh, this is why I say true faithfulness must have a view towards future generations. Look at verse 12 back in... Uh, Genesis forty eight. Yes. Something about sitting here thinking we talked a couple weeks ago about how the church is steering towards this this view of the Christian walk centering around the sydney. Um strangely that came to mind when I was thinking about my own family. I remember my grandmother and my grandfather talking to me about the Lord prior to me claiming salvation. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the same, you know, with my dad. There's not a lot of talk after, after I was saved. Yeah. Was kind of, hey, if you're saved, good. And then our family did go back to normal. We don't like to talk back into the same. So hmm. it's kind, of, kind of interesting, but Yeah. And yeah. So, the American church just you know, a lot. hmm so kind of Yeah. Yeah, I recently saw a document that stated... I recently saw a document that stated that a bunch of decisions had been made at a particular area and then it was like the church should have been doing this why didn't the church do this like well we're called to make disciples called to walk in this Um, we're not going to have a quick record of bam 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 exactly what you just said Mike I mean it's sort of it's hard work and I mean if you're tired or But there is so much of this mentality in our church that sees that one day. Yeah. Not in our church, not Cross 20, but the American church. Yeah. That sees that one day a of billy a month, they're preaching. Freak out and people come down. Woo! Yeah. Peace out. They don't know. Yeah. The they, don't, they don't know the problem. Yeah, there's an abandoning of this process that's biblical. That, yeah, that's... Um, I wasn't trying to, like, advance No, no. Telling people about Jesus is good, and I suggest everyone does it regularly. If there's any questions about that... Go out and go stop somewhere on the way home. Just stop. Tell someone. That's fantastic. We are pro Jesus talk. Um, there's a whole book of the Bible called Numbers. I mean, it matters to some degree. Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy in that process when you see, like, you're, you're telling your children what's been done and you're telling them what part of what family they're a part of and, and who our God is. That's, that's the language we have in our house. This, our God is this God, the only one true God. And, and it's cool in that when you're doing that and you see God's hand at work in their life, you're like, wow, my child's changing because of what God's doing. And, and we'll get to that in a few more minutes when he starts recounting some of his own children's deeds. But when you see that, it's like, whoa, okay. This isn't just like a mind game. You don't just tell your kids a whole lot. It's not brainwashing. I mean, this is spirit-led movement. And, and if you believe in the work of the spirit and you believe in a very real God, that, that shouldn't be hard. Um, so this isn't brainwashing. But then you get those affirmations along the way where you're like, wow, that was gentleness. Uh, I know, my child, gentleness may not be the normal thing. And gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. That's movement of the spirit. That's God's hand. Wow, cool. And then there's rejoicing in that. Um, look at verse 12 Genesis forty-eight twelve. then Joseph removed them from his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth now this is a note the the solemnity of this moment okay and look at verse 13 I'm going to read through 20 and Joseph took them both Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand Which one's older? Manasseh. Uh, Towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph. He blessed Joseph. He's got this crossover switcheroo thing going on here. And he blessed Joseph. And said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd. Is this a language that's in your house? The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who's redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He's not saying anything new. He's repeating what God has promised him. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and it, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand and, to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's, he's, he's responding in a way that, My, my dad is, is old, and my dad is, is blind for the most part, and maybe he's making a mistake, and he goes to physically move his father's hand over to the son who he sees should be receiving the blessing of the firstborn. Look what happens. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. This is not the, nat- the natural order of things, Dad. It displeased him. I mean, this should sound like other stories we've read. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God makes you as Ephraim and Manasseh. This, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Switcheroo, again, we've seen this before. Where have we seen this before? Yeah, 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 there's a lot of it, yeah. Um, uh, The first time that I read these verses, I thought to myself, as I'm reading through this, I'm journaling through the Old Testament right now, I'm reading through this, the first time I read it, I I thought, here we go again with the old blessing switcheroo. What is the deal? And really, I pictured uh, Jacob, Israel, as a stubborn old troublemaker, I was like, man, that stubborn old trumpet. Why is he crossing his arms? Just bless him. What is the deal? But that's not the reality of what's going on here. What we're seeing here is a pattern that God has made known from the beginning and continues to make known today. God will often go against the order of nature to remind us that he is the God of nature. He's the creator of nature. His power supersedes natural occurrences. You hear that? His power supersedes natural occurrences. By all natural things, you should, the older one gets the blessing, and then the younger one doesn't get the same blessing as the older one. This is the firstborn. God says, Nope, I change things. I work in a different way. Um, Driscoll said, uh, in reference to this verse, he said, God works through election and new birth, not succession and birth. So, like, we have a son who will be here, hopefully, Lord willing, in June, little Henry. And he's not Hank. There's only one Hank. We all know that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so Henry will be here, and let's say that I'm teaching or doing something, and he's like, Dad, I'm going to do that when you're dead. No, I'm going I'm to do that when you're gone. Well, that's not how we work. This isn't a kingship. It's not God's design that, okay, just it's natural. You're, you're the firstborn son. Okay, here, you get it now. God works by order of election and by order of new birth, not just birth. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty one interestingly says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. How is this an act of great faith? I mean, Hebrews 11, if you've ever read it, it has like these monumental, bam, by faith, they laid hold of these things from a distance, not knowing them in their reality, but knowing that it would be. How was he blessing them by faith? How is this a great act of faith, do you think? Yeah. Yes. He cannot see exactly what's going to happen with these boys, but what has he received from the Lord? A word by the work of the Spirit that this is how it's going to be. And so by faith, he is communicating these things and pronouncing these things. Look at verses 21 through 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you. That's, that's sweet. I hope I get the chance to say that at the end of my life to my children and my grandchildren. I'm about to die, but it's all right. God's going to be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He, he notes this land. They're not Egyptians, and they're not designed eternally for the land of Goshen. Moreover, I have given uh, to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. What we see here is Joseph communic- or Jacob communicates to Joseph that the future well-being of Israel is somehow linked to another land outside of Egypt even outside of Goshen, the promised land. Look at 49 verse 1. <coughs> then, jo- then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. I mean, he is getting some work done in these last few breaths, isn't he? I'm going to take care of this. You guys are going to be in the place of Simeon and Levi. And Come on, sons. I'm going to tell all of y'all what's about to happen in the future, Now, he's not a sorcerer, he's not a palm reader, he's not a magician. It is believed that one of the important tasks of the patriarch is to prophesy over the family. He is real. uh, Calvin actually said this. When I quote Calvin, I don't usually say it's Calvin because he's highly misunderstood. And some people say, oh, it's Calvin, I'm not going to listen. Calvin said this, it's good. He's not arrogant. He's the guy who said that how frivolous a thing it is to boast of knowledge when love is wanting. That's, that's, that's a very loving attitude, uh, okay? Now, this is what he said. He, Israel, is by no means making a private testamentary disposition of his domestic affairs. What he's doing here, he is not saying, uh, this is the way it is as I see it because I'm a smart guy. That's not what he's doing. He's not making a testament to the disposition of his domestic affairs, but that he is expressing in words those oracles which are deposited with him until the event shall follow in due time. For he does not command them simply to listen to his wishes. He's not saying, gather around, I got some wishes, I'm about to die, zip it and listen. But he gathers them into an assembly by a solemn rite that they may hear what shall occur to them in the succession of time. This is God ordained. The Spirit has spoken to him. He is prophesying over his family. And the Lord has revealed to him some things about his children, which have been revealed in large part through observation of their lives, observation of how they move, observation of how they respond to God. Now, I'm going to read through this chapter, and as we do, we'll have some comments along the way. But pay attention to the detail. This uh, This is an old man. He's 147. He is on his deathbed. These are his final words. And listen to what he speaks to. With his sons. Verse 2 Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, firstborn. At this point, I'm assuming Reuben kind of, yes, father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power unstable as water (laughs) you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed Uh oh then you defiled it he went up to my couch it's like in the middle of it he's emotional and he's like you will not be preeminent you went to your father's and then it's like he turns around he went up to my couch that's, what, it, that's what, what I'm seeing here. It, and so Reuben, okay? That's all for Reuben. Let's move on. Look at verse 5. Way to go. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Remember, what did he say before? He said, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. We'll keep an eye on Simeon here. Reuben um, appears to have been replaced. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. Uh, uh, Dad? <laughs> this is bad. For in their anger, anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung op- oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, And their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Wow. Simeon and Levi, they're violent. Note how a moment, their reaction to the defiling of Dinah, that's what he's talking about. Remember that story where we all kind of wanted to go, that was awesome. Where they go in and they have like the whole city of men circumcised. And then while they were sore, they killed them all. All the guys want to be like, oh, that's horrible. And that was a pretty awesome plan. (laughs) But it's cruel anger. That's what it was. I mean, I kind of wanted to high five them, but the Lord doesn't give them a high five. And certainly in this blessing, we see that note how a moment, such as their reaction to the defiling of Dinah, can be defining. That moment can be sort of defining. For us, we should see this and learn to put restraint upon ourselves when our emotions are given to a response, particularly in this very vengeful and cruel anger, we should rest- put restraint upon ourselves when our emotions are given to a response that is not honoring to or representative of our God. When you read this, that's what you should come away with, at least. There's probably more, because the Holy Spirit does a lot. But at the very least, you come away with that saying, you know what? When my emotions are given something- to something that totally misrepresents God, he's not a cruel, anger his wrath is not is not it's not this cruel, spiteful thing, um, and it misrepresents who he is. When I'm given to that, I, I should not give way to my emotions, but hopefully the spirit can produce the fruit of self-control. Now look at verse eight. This this gets interesting. Judah. Now, what do we know of Judah so far? Before I even go into his blessing, you're thinking, oh, it didn't go good for Reuben, didn't go good for Simeon, didn't go good for Levi. What, did, uh, what was it that old Judah did? Tamar, <clears throat> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Judah, um, he married a Canaanite. When she died in a horrible turn of events, he solicited a prostitute that was actually his daughter-in-law, uh, not so pretty. So, I, I, when I got to this point, I'm thinking, Judah, oh man, he's going to get it. Listen to this. Your brother shall praise you. Certainly not because of what he did in the past. Your brother shall praise you. Your hands should be on the neck of your enemies. It's a picture of power. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Um, that sounds like Joseph's dream. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. It gets a little weird there at the end, but um, here's the point. Uh, Judah gets quite a bit of airtime. And when you see something like that where you're like, okay, they got shorter time, they got shorter time. Others get even shorter time. But he gets quite a bit of airtime. Why? Um, Though all those other things happen that were not so pretty. Through God's changing his heart, it appears that um, Judah has changed. That should be encouraging. Because when you look at what Judah did and the way he lived, and he was certainly gave way to his emotions and the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences, God changed his heart. And it appears uh, that he will be blessed by and used by God for great things, of which we know many now. Look at verse 13. "Zebulun shall dwell at the sword sells seashells. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon." So that's that. Look at verse 14. "Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people. It's a play on words, like Dan the judge, as son, as one of the tribes of Israel. I wish it would have been a better point. It would have been more timely. Uh, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path, the, that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. We've all had that happen. Uh, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Not, not, get to this point. Uh, it sounds weird. Some of these things are hard. There's a lot of uh, language that's not, you, you don't go like, oh, I get it. You know, there's, there's metaphor, there's all these other examples. But when you get to verse 18, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. What, what we're seeing here is a father who, though he is prophesying and giving the words of the Lord to what's going to happen, um, he is also a father. You, you cannot remove the, per, the paternal affection that he has for his boys. And it's almost like he's going down. He's like, you're going to be forced into labor. You're going to be kind of a swindler. You're not going to be so honest. And we're talking about the tribes of Israel here. And then at, at one point, he does what most of us really should do and many of us have done in times of turmoil and conflict and hardship. He says, I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's like this interruption in the middle of this Thing, this blessing. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Almost like I said, it's worth waiting for. Even though this is going to happen to the offspring, I will wait for your salvation. It's a good response in a time of turmoil. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. You see some conflict there. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. <laughs> I guess he's the cook. Um. Naftali or naftali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. I had no idea what that meant when I first read it. It's actually pointing to his words. He's going to be a talker. Uh, He will get into conflict and he will be the kind of guy who's able to talk his way right through it, and work that out with words. We don't have to pick up a sword. He's not going to be the kind of guy who's strong, who can throw down on someone. He's going to be the kind of guy who's like, well, oh, let me talk a little bit until you're not mad anymore, and then we'll come through, and we'll work this out, and it'll all be good. Are we friends? You want to have dinner? Okay, fantastic. That's that guy. One guy said uh, he, will <laughs> he will have suavity of words. That's what one commentator said, suavity. Joseph is a fruitful bough, fruitful bough by a spring. up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart for his brothers. Clearly, Joseph and Judah get a lot of airtime. And what we're going to see is that Joseph's rise to power is more temporary than Judah's even. Judah's will, will have a little more uh, staying power in the long run. And then Benjamin, verse 27, is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribe, tribes of Israel This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of uh, Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. We've heard all that before. That's an important spot. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And listen to this. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I would love to go like that. Let me just get some things done, get some things off my chest, make it clear, bless the family, communicate how great our God is, and I will curl up and I'm done. That was pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Jacob ends his life with suitable blessings. Do you see that word, suitable blessings? Uh, I'm going to end with sort of a flurry of questions that I just want you all to think about, and then I will just transition right into prayer. Because as I see him do this, as I see him bless the family, as I see him very relational, he knows those boys well. I'm led to just a handful of questions and thoughts that I will close with and then pray. Do I reflect on God's divine favor and communicate it to my children? If our family is in a pattern of doing something or living in a way that is not pleasing to God, do I note the problem and move in a way that leads the family to repentance, starting with me? Am I so in tune with the attitudes and mindsets of my children that I'm able to see God's handiwork? When I see God's handiwork in my children's lives, do I praise him for it? And recount his deeds so that others might praise him in a proper response? Not just for what he does, but for who he is? Do we see God making himself known in future generations? Just this week, Lindsay called me and was like, Hey, I think I see the Lord at work in Ella's life. She's helping me. She sees a need, and she's getting up, and she's cleaning things up, and she's helping, and she's being a peacemaker. And so she went to Ella and said, Ella, you... I think I see the Lord at work in your life which is great and I see you doing these things and Ella said yeah and he washed away my sins (laughs) I'm like that's cool but are we looking for those things am I seeking those ways that God might be making himself known in the lives of my children specifically am I saying God how are you making yourself known to them and how can I foster that how can I encourage that how can I take a progress report and go home and say, let's talk about these things. Why are, you, why are you being faithful in these things? Just because our God is good. And how can we continue in it? Am I aware of my role in making God known to them? When I am a grandfather, will I have the ear of my family? Will blessings from God delivered through my mouth mean anything to my family? Am I currently living in a way so as to emulate the very personal and relational character of our God? When I see Jacob at the end of his life, very personal with the whole family, speaking to s- specific things, both good and bad. It's not just let me pat everybody on the back and die. He says, look, these are important things to note, and our God is very real. I'm not going to sweep stuff under the rug, and I'm not going to let things that are worthy of praise go unaccounted for. I want it all to be out in the light. He's very relational. He knows his boys well. Do you know your children that well? I mean, if you were to sit tonight and go home and sit with your children and say, I see the Lord doing this in your life, would you be able to list anything that you've observed? And then when you go to the next one, would you be able to list anything that you've observed? It's difficult. It takes work. It takes attention to detail. It takes this kingdom mindset, having a continual awareness of God's presence and understanding that we are created to be eternal beings and that every word matters every action matters um, these are a lot of questions i'll probably email out uh, kind of a follow-up on this with some of these questions just and pray that god might use these chapters to to quicken us to parent and to love and to live in a way where our families are god-fearing families putting his glory on display let's pray lord we love you and we thank you for this time Lord, I so, when I come to the end of my life, would love to have the clarity of mind and the ear of a family that needs to hear what you're doing, what you've been doing, what you're going to do. Lord, I pray personally just for that clarity in my own life with my children right now. They're young, but they're not too young to be influenced by the Lord. Lord, as we see the nuances in, our char- in the character of our children, I-, I pray that we would try to make use of that in some ways to communicate who you are, whether it's their sense of humor, whether it's their little quirky attributes and traits, whether it's um, their resilience and steadfastness, whether it's their lackadaisical attitude, whether it's their um, determination or lack of it. I pray that you would allow us to see all those little responses as opportunities to point our children Godward. Lord, I, I confess publicly that I am thankful uh, for a wife who does that and helps me to do it. Uh, Lord, we love you very much. We're humbled by your word, and we're so encouraged by it. I pray that we would go and, and walk in this truth, and I pray that we walk in it together. I pray that families would see each other as resources and brothers and sisters in this walk uh, as we're aiming to put your glory on display so that you might be known by many. We love you and we praise you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.